it's, uh, it's really great uh, <clears throat> being with you this morning, and I really mean that. I do always say that, but I really mean it. I got a text message from, from, from some friends this week that uh, said, um, hey, we've got a house in Carmel and tickets for you to the U.S. Open of golf. And I said, get behind me, Satan. I'm preaching on Sunday. <laughs> so I'm really grateful to be here. And, uh, you know, I don't always make the right decision, but I think I'm going to get a high five when I get to heaven for, uh, for that. So, uh, yeah, a real pleasure. And um, I, I think I'm a dad. My wife's halfway through her pregnancy so I'm a, little, I'm a fetus dad, um, but I still am wearing my number one dad socks. Um, I'm number one, sorry, guys. But, I, but partially, you know, it's because I don't have a baby yet, so can't make any mistakes when my wife's doing all the work. Um, so yeah, today's passage is still in our series in Second Thessalonians, but some of the discussions that we're going to be having are about Father's Day, and so they'll be relevant to Father's Day. My hope is to kind of like still coach some dads, not from my personal experience, but just from what Scripture is telling us. But I do also trust, like is the case with the Word of God, it'll be relevant for all of us this morning. Um, Like I said, we're in 2 Thessalonians. 2 Thessalonians 1 is about trials. Chapter 2 is about waiting for Jesus' return and having hope in the return of Jesus. 2 Thessalonians 3 is really about what we do in the meantime. What kind of life we live? What, is, what does it look like to just be an everyday, in the nitty-gritty, in the midst of your existing sin, but still Jesus redeeming you and, and, and growing you in your faith? Like, what does it look like just to be a real, everyday Christian? And uh, there's a lot in our passage, and we'll, we'll jump in. I want to make just this point up front. I talk about movies a lot in Sunday mornings. Maybe it's just a phase I'm going through, but it's because I am just uniquely grasped and like, moved by powerful stories. And I think we love movies, we love books, we love telling each other stories because there's something about those stories that tell us about our our own life and our own meaning. I I think what we find as we reflect on powerful stories that really move us is that we care about them because there is a grand story arc of God, of creation, fall, redemption in Jesus Christ, and restoration in his return, and even restoration in the daily life that we live today, that we live in. We live in that story. And other powerful stories kind of remind us about what it's like to love people, what it's like to sacrifice yourself for people that you love. And uh, here's my goal, honestly. Uh, I, I want to be a hero in my life. And you might feel the same way. I want to be a hero to my wife. I want to be a hero to our city. Not because I want to be on a statue or whatever. I don't, I don't want notoriety. Um, I, I just want to be the kind of person at the end of my life, God willing, I live to an old age, that people are able to kind of be around me and hang out and say, you know, you loved us, you served us, and you, you were our hero. I want that. I, I want to be a hero. You might want that too, Father's Day or not. Mothers, fathers, teenagers. Paul gives us some instruction in this passage on how to live as everyday heroes, because I'm sure you would intuitively understand that being a hero to people in your life is not about making a one-time heroic decision, and for the rest of your life, you're just kind of a, a bum, but like stepping in every day consistently and loving people, serving people, and having integrity and consistency with your family or with your spouse or with your friends, that's how you live as a hero. It's not as though this one poetic moment is going to happen where a bus is traveling towards someone and there's going to be a sign that says, push this person out of the way uh, to save them and then you're going to do it and then you'll just be a hero. You might have that happen, but it'll be, you'll be a hero on the news for one day. If you want to be a hero in the everyday heroic mission that God has called you to, it's about showing up every day and loving people and serving people much like Christ has loved and served us. 
I want to be a hero. I want us to be a hero. And in 2 Thessalonians 3, Paul encourages and confronts and teaches us how to be everyday heroes in our own life. The problem is, though we might be reminded when we read Scripture that we are called to have a hero mission, there are things that distract us from that hero mission. There are things that tempt us away from it. Christian author John Ortberg um, wrote a book about this for men, actually, and he calls the alternate mission that you live for a shadow mission. A shadow mission is like the, the, the hero mission that God has called you to, but it's just a little bit off. It's a distraction from, it's a temptation away from the real mission that God has called you to. He says that a shadow mission is an authentic mission given by God that has been derailed, often in imperceptible ways. Part of what makes a shadow mission so tempting is that it's usually so closely related in our gifts and our passions, it's not 180 degrees off track, it's typically 10 degrees off track, but it's a shadow mission nonetheless. All of us have a shadow mission, a temptation away from the mission that God has called us to, from the identity that God has given to us. And it's imperceptible at times. When we wake up, we don't make the decision, I'm not going to fulfill God's mission for my life today but it's a shadow mission. It's 10 degrees off track, and that's our temptation. Paul wants us to get on track with the mission and the identity that we have in Christ, and he does that in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3. And we'll read verses 6 through 15. Paul writes, In the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you, brothers and sisters, to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive and does not live according to the teaching you receive from us. For you yourselves know how you ought to follow our example. We were not idle when we were with you, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. On the contrary, we worked day and night, laboring and toiling so that we would not have burdened you, be a burden to you, so that we would not be a burden to any of you. We did this not because we don't have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. For even when we were with you, we gave you this rule, the one who is unwilling to work shall not eat. We hear that some of you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy, they are busy bodies. Such people we command and urge in the Lord Jesus Christ to settle down and earn the food they eat. And as for you, brothers and sisters, never tire of doing what's good. Take special note of anyone who does not obey our instruction in this letter. Do not associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Yet you do not regret, yet, yet do not regard them as an enemy but warn them as you would a fellow believer. So, Paul's encouragement to us is to be an everyday hero on a hero mission that God has called us to. And if you want to be a hero to others, your spouse, your kids, your workmates, your friends, then be an everyday Christian just through everyday Christian faithfulness in three areas. One, Paul addresses the problem of idleness, laziness. Secondly, the practice of discipline, and thirdly, the principles of work. He gives us an issue going on in the church, the problem of laziness and idleness, which just like any surface sin in your life is embedded in a heart issue, a heart sin that is the cause of this kind of like surface level sin of idleness and disruption. Secondly, he gives us the practice of discipline within your church and within the church and within your life. And then thirdly, he teaches us kind of a theology of work. And if you want to be an everyday hero on a hero mission, then we can step up in these three ways. The problem of idleness. He says in verse 6, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we command you to keep away from every believer who is idle and disruptive. He repeats that. 
And then in verse 7, he says, For you yourselves know, follow our example. We weren't idle when we were with you. Verse 8, nor did, nor did we eat anyone's food without paying for it. It was so interesting to read this passage. Like, what is Paul getting at about, like, who's picking up the bill at dinner? Um, and then, but in verse 11, he's saying, it repeats again, here, we hear that some of you are idle and disruptive. They are not busy. They're busy bodies. So what's going on here? Idle and disruptive, repeated in this passage. And then if you remember back in 1 Thessalonians, when we preached through that passage, we have the same issue. 1 Thessalonians 4, Paul writes, Mind your own business and work with your hands so that your daily life may win the respect of outsiders and so uh, not create a, a dependence on anyone. And then in 1 Thessalonians 5.14, he says, We urge you, brothers and sisters, and warn those who are idle and disruptive. This is obviously an important issue, idle and disruptive. You might have observed in your own life that when you're idle, you make disruptive, divisive, and destructive decisions. Like, has anyone ever, can you think back on being a teenager, and some of the worst decisions you ever made were when you were bored? Like, it's, it's, it's the middle of the day, you faked being sick, you know, you're home from school, you're idle, and then you think, I know what I'll do. Whatever that was, bad idea. When you're idle, you're disruptive. And the church had this issue. There were people who were idle. They weren't working for the food that they were eating. They, they quit their jobs. They had an improper theology thinking that, just like in the, the, the common Greek belief of the day, that the world was evil and that spirituality was good. And so if Jesus is going to come back and if I'm called to this new mission then I'm going to quit my job. Work stinks. It's hard. And it's physical and it's dirty. And I don't want to be around these sinful people. I'm a Christian now. And so I'm going to leave work. And I'm going to live off the dependency of these people who are working. I'm going to eat their food, but it'll free me up to be like this really spiritual person who doesn't work anymore and eats other people's food with other people's money. And Paul's confronting this extra spiritual but idle and disruptive ideology. You can imagine in the church, people who are idle are also disruptive. If you ever tried to be in a Bible study or lead a Bible study, but then like somebody in the group is just talking too much, or like somebody wants to heckle a sermon, you can't do a lot of spiritual growth if one person is divisive. It's hard to trust friends if they're gossips. It's easy to disrupt a relationship because all you have to do is just be disruptive, not get on task, not stay on the Jesus mission that God has called us to. It only takes a few, and so Paul is starting to address this kind of with severity in the church the problem of idleness. So why were these people so lazy and disruptive in the church? Well, part of it is that, as I mentioned in the Greek culture, these people were saved out of a world where they viewed the physical as bad. And so in a sense, by blending their current cultural beliefs with their faith, the problem was that they made Jesus into their own image. Instead of being people made in God's image, they made God in their own image. They said, the kind of Jesus I want to follow is the kind of Jesus that creates a church where I can get free food, and I don't have to work anymore, and I don't have to deal with those sinful people because I'm spiritual now. So they've made up a Jesus that was just a conception of their own mind that fit right into their box. And people do that today. I mean, we're guilty of it sometimes, where our idea of who God is is more of a reflection of who we are than how Scripture has revealed and how history reveals our Savior. And they did it in the first century. Because of it, they viewed all that stuff as bad, and so they were idle and disruptive. But just notice, it's not just a character flaw that they were lazy. It was wrong belief. 
It was getting their information from a wrong source because they believed that Jesus had already come back earlier in the book. Or it was blending their cultural beliefs with their faith. Whatever it is, it's the misbelief in the God of the Bible that actually causes the sin, not just the character flaw. We'll get back to that in just a second. The second reason why some of these people were um, idle is because they were busybodies. And the, the translation from the Greek goes right into the English when it says they're not busy, but they're busybodies, which I thought was kind of a cute statement from Paul. When he says busybodies, he's referring to a thing that's happened in the first century that's a little bit hard to explain, but it is still relevant. Okay, so in the first century, if you were rich, if you wanted status in a city, the greatest way to achieve that without having immense power, like being in charge of the whole government, would be to be a patron. And Paul addresses a patron-client relationship. Patrons were rich people who uh, would gain status by actually paying for people, putting, putting poor people on their payroll. I'm saying a lot of P words. Putting a lot of people on their payroll, and you would come around. Those people would say positive things about them in a city. They would open the door for the person who was a patron. They would, um, and in this case, they'd be in church, but they wouldn't have an equal relationship under Christ with those people. They would be working for the patron. And the patrons would walk around, and they would teach, they would educate their people. They would spout off their philosophy about life. And those, peop- those clients would, would, in a sense, have devotion and almost kind of worship for their patron. You can imagine this being a problem in the church because in Christ, we're all leveled at the foot of the cross. We're all equally sinfully flawed and in need of a Savior. You can imagine how disruptive it would be in the church if all of a sudden you had clients that were on the payroll of a pers- another person in the church. They would never confront in love a patron, because they were on the dole, they were on the payroll. They would never be an equal brother or sister in Christ because they're dependent on that money. And you can imagine that if, if a, a patron ever became an elder, it would be like their church. And so Paul's preaching against both things. He's saying, hey, poor folks, you're dependent on the money from these patron people who are, who are you're on their payroll. You need to treat them like a brother or a sister in Christ. See them as an equal. See yourself as an equal. Find your identity in Christ and then start acting like it and work for your own food to represent that equality that we have in Jesus. And then he's looking at these rich patrons saying, listen, you don't own this church. Don't fill this church with a bunch of people who are on your payroll, speaking your name positively, making statues or pillars, and engraving that in your name as you enter a city. We don't need patronage in our church. Paul addresses the same thing in 1 Corinthians 1, when he says, um, some of you are saying you follow Apollos, and some Paul, and then some Jesus. And you've got your little like senior pastor of your church. You're saying, oh, I go to Ray's church. Check me out. I'm real spiritual in this way because I go to Ray's church. Or I go to Apollos' church. I go to Paul's church. And there's a, I'm, I'm a Paul kind of Christian. He's saying, no, follow Jesus and stop making these teachers into gurus of the Christian life. Follow our Savior. Find your identity in your life in Him. And stop making it about some person who's just giving you credibility, giving you money. So Paul is preaching to both of those groups. But in, here, in the instance here... In verse 11, he's calling them, they're not busy, but they're busy bodies. He's saying, we all need to be equal in Christ, and the church needs to operate in that way. It's as if Paul is getting very serious with these idle people, because this isn't the first time he's mentioned it. He told them in person, stop being idle and divisive. Then he wrote it in the first letter, and he encouraged people in 1 Thessalonians, to warn them not to be idle and divisive. And then he hears back that that's still the case. And so now this is like Paul is getting very serious about this sin. It's like when I was a kid 
uh, speaking of Father's Day, that uh, the greatest threat my mom could give me when I was a kid and I was kind of being a punk was, you better wait till dad gets home. Did anyone else get the wait till your dad gets home? Okay, well, there's actually two things. One of them is my mom would open the drawer with this wooden spoon in it, and just the sound, ooh, I still don't like opening drawers. Just the sound of an opening drawer was like, shing, wong, shing, and she would just, you know, and it was a big old wooden spoon. Of course, I was a little kid. It was probably only that big. But like, you know, in my mind, it was like a broadsword. And she would, like that, you know, if just, if I was in trouble, just hearing the sound of the drawer would make me repent, you know, and apologize for whatever I had done. But if that didn't work, to my two siblings as well, y'all better wait till dad gets home. And that's what Paul's doing. He's saying, listen, it's dad moment, dad disciplinary moment. Everyone sit down, shut up. Here's the deal. You're being, maybe he didn't say shut up. Uh, You're being disruptive. You're hurting yourself and you're hurting the church and we're done with it. We're done giving you your lazy, disruptive influence on the church. I love the church too much to let you be an influence. And sinful people who have this persistent, uh, unrepentant sin in your life, I love you too much to let you go. And so he's telling Christians, warn them, identify them. And if they don't repent, if they don't change and they're still being disruptive in your church, then separate from them. He does the same thing in 1 Corinthians 5. There's a guy who's sleeping with somebody. He's got sexual sin in his life. He's sleeping with his mom or his stepmom. And he's saying, listen, this is a brother in Christ, and so we need to level some judgment on that person because we care about him enough to confront that sin. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 5 says the same thing. Um, I'm not talking about confronting sinners outside of the church. We need to serve them, preach the gospel to them, help them know Jesus. We're talking about brothers and sisters in Christ who have long-term unrepentant sin, and now it's going to make its way into the rest of our church if we don't do something. You better wait till dad gets home. Paul is being very serious about the sin of idleness. Let's do some application. Laziness is not just a character flaw. It's a disbelief in God. There's a requisite disbelief in God to every surface sin in your life, especially with laziness. So what are you forgetting about God when you're lazy? When you're prone to laziness, not stepping up, not being the everyday hero that maybe in the back of your head you know God is calling you to be with your family, at work, with your loved ones, what's the issue? It might be that you're forgetting God's goodness. There might be a part of your life that says, I want to put up a few extra hours on the couch because I'm not sure if I step up, if I'm going to be joyful. I'm not sure if I step out and and honor God in this area of my life, whether I'll be happy or not. And so I'm going to protect my own pleasure and protect my own joy by scheduling some more me time and scheduling some time away from a few of my responsibilities. And that's how laziness creeps in. It's not just a character flaw. In that moment, you're thinking on some level, I don't believe God is good and that he's going to take care of me if I step out and honor the Lord. If I give away those resources, if I, if I expend emotional energy on people who are needy in my life, I won't be okay, and so I've got to protect my own pleasure. That's kind of the heart of laziness for a lot of folks. Maybe it's for myself. So it, it matters then with Paul, because he's doing whatever we can to take you off that shadow mission and reorient you back to Jesus. God loves you. He's done everything for you to be united with him. He's a good, gracious God. And so you don't need to be lazy. You don't need to save yourself by having a perfect schedule that's just right for your pleasure because he's gonna take care of you as you obey him because he's a good God. So Paul's goal is to reorient these Christians. And he does it not just by coaching them not to be idle and divisive anymore. He's saying, community, we need to step up. And that's the second point that he tells us the practice of discipline. And this is where Paul gets disciplinary. He says in verse six, 
Keep away from every believer who's idle and disruptive and doesn't live according to the teaching that you received from us. In verse 12, he says, Hey guys, settle down and earn the food that you eat. And in verse 14, take note of anyone who doesn't obey the instruction in this letter and don't associate with them in order that they may feel ashamed. Serious language from Paul. Notice, Paul doesn't say shame them. He says, remove yourself from them. Stop weakening the, the, the penalty of sin in their life by enabling them. Stop taking care of them and holding their hand through these unrepentant sins they have in their life. Uh, on some level, there has to be a separation where you're letting them have the, the life and the decisions that they've chosen. Not to shame them so that they may feel ashamed. And it is in the passive voice, meaning there is something else doing the work. We're not shaming that person. In fact, he even says in verse 15, not treating them as an enemy, but treating them as a fellow believer. So this isn't excommunication. This isn't us deciding, hey man, you messed up so much, we don't think you're a Christian anymore. Uh, you're done, you're out of the church. This is saying, we're still treating them like a believer, not as an enemy, but setting some level of boundary to say, we're not gonna hold your hand and keep letting the sin in your life that you just won't repent from you won't bring the scripture to bear on your life and we're not going to keep enabling you and taking care of you and just pray for you silently. We have to do something because we love you. The greatest form of hate is not confrontation. It's indifference. And when the church is indifferent towards sin with people that we're supposed to love and disciple and care for within our community, it's not love. It's enabling. Paul is coaching the church. You've got to be good at three things with this. You got to teach. And he even says in verse 6, we commanded you, verse 12, we commanded you, live according to the teaching. And then it's not just teaching, it's not just, hey, shape up. He then lives the example himself, and he even mentions it. If you look in verse 7, 8, and 9, he says, follow our example. Verse 8, we work day and night, laboring and toiling so that we wouldn't be a burden on any of you. Verse 9, we did this not because we don't have the right to such help, but in order to offer ourselves as a model for you to imitate. Paul stepped up. And actually, this is unique because we talked about patronage and clienthood. Well, Paul was a teacher. He was an educated man. And in the day, because there wasn't a university system of colleges, Paul would have been justified in the culture of the day to charge money for some of his teachings, and that was normal. So when Paul goes to Athens in Acts 17, and he's preaching in the middle of the city, there were all kinds of other teachers in that city, and it would have been normal for Paul to kind of like step up, to start teaching, and anyone who became his followers would have been a part of Paul's university. And they would have paid him for his work, and that would have been justified in the time Paul, because he doesn't want to confuse what he's doing with patronage, and because the gospel's free to every person who wants to have Jesus in their life, Paul doesn't charge for his, for his teaching. Instead, Paul is a missionary that though he argues, hey, you can support our mission, that's okay. He goes out when he's out of money and he goes and builds tents and he works for his money because he wants to be an example to these types of folks. I'm not your patron. I'm not your savior. I'm not here for status. I'm not here for money. I'm here to give you Jesus because that's what you need. And so he's shaping the church in a way that's not built around him, it's built around Jesus. And so he's, because he's not charging that money, uh, he's able to kind of like share the gospel more freely. So his discipline is out of this powerful example to go, I'm broke. I like run out of cash spending it on the ministry. Then I go build tents. Then I spend it. Then I go build tents and then I spend it because I want to be a powerful example of the fact that that's what Jesus did. He lived a life where he came to serve and he came to give 
and he gave us this free good news thing, the gospel of Jesus Christ. He gave us this, this he did for us this thing that we call the gospel. This is a free gift of salvation to us. So Paul's the example. And then he does the third thing. He draws the boundary. He's willing to make a tough decision by saying, okay, time's up. If you don't work, you don't eat. Keep away from these folks. Stop creating a scenario where they can continue to thrive in their sin. Some of this might seem heavy-handed, or it might seem like it would coach us as Christians to be like morally superior to other people. And it might be the case, but if you've ever had an addict in your family, or if you've had friends that were addicted to drugs or alcohol or other things, um, chances are you know that drawing boundaries with people is not always a bad thing. And I don't have a ton of personal experience with this in my younger life, but for the last few years, before I moved to Orange County, I had a weekly Bible study at a recovery home. And it wasn't a Christian recovery home. It was just a work home of a bunch of men who um, were all addicts. And, uh, and they worked really hard all day. And one of their rewards for a, a hard day's work was coming to my Bible study. And I would just come to the house. There was 100 or so guys kind of packed into this, a few different houses in this little neighborhood. And so they would say, Mike's here. And then anyone who wanted to come to Bible study would show up. And it was a really unique circle of men. Some who were still detoxing uh, and were new to the house. And some who were just right in the middle of the difficult hump about a month in where they missed their old life. They missed the freedom they used to have that has now been restricted so that they can get sober and start to think clearly about the lies that they've been telling themselves and, and the lies that they've been telling other people. Right in that hump is like a month in, these guys would always talk about quitting and leaving and nobody understands me and nobody understands my upbringing and all the hurts I've been through. I'm just going to leave and I'm just going to go use and, and go back on the streets. And then I also had men in the group who were about to leave. They were about to graduate and they were in a really healthy place. They were ready to step out into the marketplace as sober men. And they had already gotten sober, could think straight, their head was above water, and now they were able to believe the gospel. The interesting thing was the men who went through that Bible study um, I took pride in the fact that they could like leave the house and then join our church. And for a while, all the people who were getting baptized at church had like the most gnarly testimonies, you know, like baptism service was like a little nine-year-old girl is like, I love Jesus. And then I did, I did crack for all these years. And then I did this and it was like, ooh, kids, earplugs, like uh, powerful testimony of life change, you know, tatted up guy and a bunch of real rough dudes who would always weirdly sit in the right part of church, you know, and, um, and would sing. And it was just kind of a cool testimony as that group grew, the longer we did this Bible study. Out of it, our church uh, started its own recovery group. And then we started seeing people coming out of the woodwork who were lying about the fact that they were in addiction, but now we're free to start telling the truth. Whatever it is, if you have addicts in your life, if you have, if you have any addictions yourself, you know that people setting boundaries with you is a loving thing. Somebody loving you enough to step up and say, you have an issue, I'm here with you, but we're not going to enable this issue. Every single person that I saw succeed in their sobriety was able to do that because they, they created boundaries in their life, getting sober, working in a home. And they also had to change the relationship they had with the enabling people in their life because there were people in their life that enabled them for years that weren't willing to step up and say the difficult things that weren't willing to kick them out of the house when they stole and when they started using in the house. Here's the thing, too. When you think honestly about yourself, you're an addict. We're all spiritual addicts of something. Just because you're an addict of job success does not make you uh, sober from it. There's a part of our heart that's addicted to a number of things that, are all, that make us idle or they make us destructive in our own lives. And so we need the same thing. 
I think that's why God has created marriage, like men especially. Marriage tends to round out men so that you have someone in your life who, like finally, once you get married, six months into the marriage, has somebody in your life to say, you know that thing you do? It's super annoying. Like nobody likes it, you know? Or you know that thing you think is really funny, those jokes you tell? They're not really that funny. Like that's, what, that's, that's the good thing about marriage, I think. And maybe kids do the same thing. We're all spiritual addicts, though. We need someone to say those things and speak truth into our lives. And so that's our application. We need to be good at repenting and good at speaking up. I mean, if you're a Christian, why would it be hard for someone to speak up into your life and say, hey, man, I think you have a sin issue here? Like, why, why is that difficult? You've already said I'm deeply flawed. I'm in need of a Savior. I'm not saved because of my good works. Then why is it so difficult when someone points out one of those sins for you to go, nah, man, that's not me. That's not me. I, that's, you don't understand. You don't understand my upbringing. You don't understand my spouse, whatever. Why is it so hard? We, we have to internalize the fact that you've already said I'm a flawed sinner. I can't save myself at all. And so it needs to be easy for us if we believe the gospel to get confronted and easier for us to repent and turn back onto our hero mission. Let me close with this, kind of our third point. Paul gives us the principles of work as like a foundation for this passage. If you think about where you go all week and you want to be a hero, like an everyday hero in your life, even if you're raising kids, even if you're a teenager or even if you're a college student, think about how many hours you spend with different types of people. If you're working right now with Orange County, a lot of like couples both work, we spend a lot of time at work. And I think that was the case in the first century. Paul adequately, accurately gives us a theology of work so that we can be everyday heroes to our spouses, everyday heroes to our friends, to our family, but also everyday heroes in our work. Some of us think that the only way to be spiritual in our work is to share Jesus and then make decisions that are backed up with like godly character. But it's more than that. It's more powerful than that. If, you, um, if you're a jazz fan, um, John Coltrane is kind of a legend of like sexy jazz music. And jo- John Coltrane, you can listen to it on Spotify as you drive home, but he wrote, my favorite album of his is A Love Supreme. And A Love Supreme, if you listen to it, it's got all these, like, I don't know, it just kind of makes me feel God in a cool way. Part of it's because uh, I read a while back that in the liner notes of that record, John Coltrane writes this. During the year 1957, I experienced by the grace of God a spiritual awakening which has led me to a richer, fuller, more productive life. At that time, in gratitude, I humbly asked to be given the means and the privilege to make others happy through music. I feel that this has been granted through his grace, all praise to God. John Coltrane, you know, just like the cool, subtle, jazzy drum stuff. I love Supreme. Like, you can listen to it. It's really good. It's hard to sing jazz to you. I can't explain it. It's just a cool song. And a love supreme has all these cool notes that's like trying to depict that God's grace is like flowed into his life. And, but then through his work, he's saying, my prayer was that God would make people happy through my music. And I think the same is true with Paul's theology of work. So no matter what you do for work, whatever your job is, if it is falling in line with Paul's theology of work, then it's going to create human flourishing. And that's kind of what scripture says even. Like do a word search on what the Bible says about the work of God. You'll see that God is a God who works. Like God has a job. He rests from his job. He does his job in Genesis 1. If you type in uh, to a Bible search engine or what have you, you'll see God works through providence, providing for things in the creation, 
through creating the world that we see and love, uh, through sustaining and controlling every little atom of creation. He works in judgment. He works and worked in redemption and giving us salvation. Jesus said in John 5 that uh, he says, he worked the works of the Father. He says, my food is to do the Father's will and accomplish his work in John 5, 17. The Holy Spirit in Genesis 1 is hanging over this uncreated mass of the world and then he has like domain and kind of power over it. And we see in even Ephesians 1, elsewhere in scripture, that the Holy Spirit works in saving our souls so that we repent and become Christians. God is a God who works. In heaven, all the different cultures and, and tribes and languages that come to heaven when Jesus returns uh, will have the products, it says, of their labor. They bring gold and they bring the resources from their manual labor to Jesus in heaven. And uh, I think most importantly, Psalm 145, uh, to the point that we're making, Psalm 145 says that God feeds every living thing. And in Martin Luther's commentary on Psalm 145, he makes the point that, okay, so God feeds every living thing, but if you cut up grain and you make it into bread and then you serve bread, it's still God feeding that person. And so it stands to reason then that even a milkmaid who serves milk to people is acting then as the hand of God. Another way to say it would be anything that promotes human flourishing and is work that God has called you to do is of the Lord. So uh, Tim Keller in his book on faith and works, he says that if you ask the question, how can I best be a Christian airline pilot that God wants me to be? He says, land the plane and land it in a way that it can be flown again. Um, I'll use another example. Is Brian Louie in the service? Brian, are you here? Where you at, Brian? Oh, Brian, raise your hand higher, Brian. This is Brian. Brian's an elder. Okay, uh, I'll give you an example of Brian. Brian uh, shares his faith with his coworkers, I'm sure. But I'm also very happy that when Brian, who is an engineer in waste management, manages the waste of Orange County or LA for the glory of God, I'm very happy that he succeeds at managing all of the waste. He can share his Christ, but if he were bad at managing the waste, we'd have a whole separate problem about human flourishing. And if you flip burgers, you flip burgers for the glory of God because work is good and you glorify God as the hand of God in promoting human flourishing at in and out And if you clean uh, apartments, you clean people's houses, of course it promotes human flourishing. You're creating an environment that you can do for the will of God, uh, for the glory of God, just by doing your job well with the heart that glorifies him. Work is a good thing. And Paul is saying you can be an everyday hero by going to work and being awesome. And sure, you'll have opportunities. The better you are, you'll have some influence. You love people with grace. You share the gospel. Yes, absolutely. But it's also glorifying that you can be an airline pilot and land the plane. And obviously, though, we have a problem with work. And um, I'm trying to kind of illustrate this for us in a clear way that we don't... um, leave this sermon in a difficult place. What I mean to say is, everything we've talked about so far is basically this. Uh, Paul's saying, don't be idle. So don't be lazy. So don't have bad theology that causes you to be lazy. And have some discipline. And as a church, we need to have some discipline as well. And already I can feel that this sermon is like a thousand pound weight on our shoulders because everyone who's here is going to go, being a Christian is so hard. Why did I come to church on Father's Day? Like the, the, the expectation, the responsibility that I already feel is overwhelming is now laid on me to be better in this and better in that and more godly in this and humble in this. We see in Paul's theology of work, uh, Paul's calling for us to be a hero, that our calling is not to be the hero. 
And to the extent that you find your identity in Jesus Christ, it will free you up from the weight of needing to be the best dad, be the best Christian that you can imagine. Instead, you'll be freed up to be obedient, to obey Jesus' teachings with a rest and an empowerment that comes from a person who has their identity in Christ and not in the need to be a great, obedient, perfect dad. And I'll I'll, uh, continue with this point here. If you look in Genesis 3, you see that work is broken and messed up. In Genesis 3, uh, we're out of the garden, and it says, okay, now you're going to be, you were a gardener in the garden, God provided for you, but now you're going to have to, like, work the soil till you die, and that's what life's going to be like. And then in Genesis 11, all these people get together, and they work, and they build a tower as big as they can. They want to they see themselves as God, in a sense. It says in Genesis 11:4 that we've done this to make a name for ourselves, for our work. So our problem with our work and our problem with our desire or, or our motivations to be righteous sometimes is that it's, it's meant to make a name for ourselves. Paul's theology of work, founded in identity in Christ, is meant to say, don't make your work your identity. That's when you start doing what they did with the Tower of Babel. And if I can apply it, if you make status your savior, then anything at work that threatens your status, anytime your kids act out in a way that threatens your status, you're going to mistreat them. That's what's wrong with work. It's that we use work to be our status. And so we mistreat people. We make sure that we like push down a few uh, high-performing people that might look us, look, make us look bad as their boss. Or there's a coworker that like, is overperforming for me. I need to cut them down by saying a few things. When our identity is in our status, we're constantly mistreating people at work, our family, whatever it is. But when our identity is in Christ, then you're freed up to not make your work about a soul-saving issue. You're freed up to have an identity and a a success and a security in him so it now frees you up to bless other people, to be okay if other people win more than you. We'll keep going with the application. If you use your work for security and at the root cause of your hard work is a fear that if I don't really muscle this, then God's not going to take care of me, then you're constantly going to be making decisions at work with people so that your job is never at stake, so that nothing disrupts your security. But if you find your security in a God who loves you and is powerful and great enough to take care of you, now it'll free you up to have an identity in Christ, to let loose that weight of your own security. Let God be God. And now you're freed up to say, I'm going to do this work to promote human flourishing. And if it means sometimes I make difficult decisions that my bosses don't like, I'm going to do it for, for human flourishing for the glory of God. I don't need this job. I need Jesus. If your identity is in um, money, or or pleasure that comes from money, you're going to live your life and do your work in a different kind of way than if you have your identity in Jesus. Paul's summation with a theology of work is that work is good. The problem is our identities aren't in Christ. And so it keeps us from being heroes to our coworkers because we're constantly trying to use work and use them to save ourselves. Also, there's just a weight of responsibility in life and... um, It reminds me of the end of Schindler's List. Speaking of heroes, speaking of people who stepped up and saved and sacrificed for other people, Oscar Schindler, in the end of Schindler's List, um, he makes this profound observation that I want to kind of give to you. He's a German businessman during World War II. At least this is how the story goes. Um, His conscience confronted him uh, during World War II because he noticed and he witnessed the concentration camps and Jews being killed by the Nazi party. So he decided to spend an, an, a number of, uh, or an amount, a big amount of his immense wealth 
to actually pay off German officials, Nazi officials, and free Jews from the concentration camps by putting them to work in his factories. And every single life that he saved and put into a job and forged some paperwork and paid off some officials saved an individual life, but it cost a lot of money. Each life cost a lot of money. And at the beginning phase, he saved a few. And then he started seeing that, that his conscience was, uh, was plaguing him with the need to save more people. And so he spent most of his wealth by the end of World War II saving 1,100 people. And at the end of the movie, at least, um, the Allies have won, and the Allies are coming for Oskar Schindler, who on an official level has actually aligned himself with the Nazi party because of the work that he was doing. And so now he had to flee all of his wealth to get away and have, uh, have freedom uh, elsewhere in another country. So at the end of the movie, all 1,100 people gather around to thank Oskar Schindler, but he can't handle it because he knows on some level he could have done more. And so they hug him, they embrace him, they thank him, they're crying. But he walks over to his car because he knows something's true. I could have done more. And he looks at his car and he says, why did I keep this car? I have to just leave it behind now. It's so stupid. I could have saved 10 lives with this car. It's so foolish at this point. 10 lives I could have saved with this car. And he pulls this ring off and he says, this ring could have been two people. Two people I could have saved. And they console him. They say, listen, you're being too hard on yourself. But he knows the truth that all of us know. There is a weight on us as people who are called. We've, we fall away from it with our shadow mission because the expectation is too great. We fall away from it as, uh, as husbands, wives, as, as Christians. We fall to a shadow mission because it's easier. The expectation is lower. The focus is, in, is on ourselves. Oscar Schindler knows something that you know which is that the weight of perfectly obeying God is impossible. You could always do more. You could always save another life. And if we did the Oscar Schindler means of salvation, every time you go on vacation, you'd say, we don't have to stay this long on vacation. Let's take a few days off because we could save more people. We could give away more money. And the only thing that will free us from having guilt-motivated fatherhood, guilt-motivated Christian life, is knowing that Jesus was our savior. Jesus was our hero who left nothing behind. And it's only when we find our identity in Christ and believe the gospel to uh, self-forgive will, will we be freed up to obey, freed up to give, not out of guilt, not out of a, a desire to repay some small amount of the guilt that we already feel, but out of a desire to glorify God and be the hand of God. Jesus left nothing behind. I love this passage in, um, in Luke 9. He says, Jesus says, you know, foxes have holes, birds have nests, but the Son of Man has no place to lay his head. Jesus didn't leave behind a hole. He didn't leave behind a nest, didn't leave behind a romantic partner or a house. He left nothing behind. Instead, he gave up everything so that he could be our hero. To the extent that we find our identity in Christ, will we be freed up to obey to step in and to sacrifice for other people, not because it eliminates some small amount of our personal guilt, but because he's a God who has done it all for us, who has been our hero because we can't be a hero. He sacrificed when we're done sacrificing. He has loved us when we're not lovable. And to the extent that we put our faith and our identity in him, we'll be freed up to love people at work, at home, free to get up off the couch, Free to say something that's difficult to someone who needs to hear the truth from you. Free to love people, not treating them as an enemy, but treating them as a fellow believer. 
and free to step into work with a new kind of identity that brings the gospel to bear on our daily lives at work. Holy crud, like that's a lot to work on. <laughs> Can we pray and ask that God helps us with that, uh, with that process? Let's pray.